Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're joined by guest Paul Jarvis. Paul is a veteran of the online tech world and over the years has had such corporate clients as Microsoft, Yahoo, Mercedes-Benz, Warner Music, and even Shaquille O'Neal. Today he teaches online courses, runs several software businesses, and hosts a handful of podcasts from his home on an island on the west coast of Canada. Paul's new book is called Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing for Business and is available now for pre-order. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I don't think anybody has got through saying Shaquille O'Neal without chuckling a little bit. <laughs> I almost <laughs> did. they're reading yeah. my bio. <laughs> I had to fight it. <laughs> um, so for folks who might be encountering you for the first time, can you share a little bit more about your background, who you are, what you do, all of that? Yeah. So I started out in the 90s working for myself. So I've worked for myself for well, about 20 years now. I started out as a web designer for corporate clients and then for online entrepreneurs, like some of the ones you listed uh, in the bio read. And then probably about, I don't know, five or six years ago, I kind of transitioned away from client services into products. And that was uh, interesting <laughs> um, and took about two and a half years to fully transition. Um, and now that's kind of what I do. So I make software products write books, host podcasts, online courses, all kind of for the audience of people who work for themselves, whether they're freelancers or small business owners or indie developers. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what I do. So you just listed a bunch of very different types of things. For example, you just released a new analytics product, like a, a online like a website analytics product called Fathom that I use and is fabulous. It's like, uh, it's kind of like Google analytics that you can actually use and also private, all sorts of things. But that compared that to like creative class, which is, you know, you could describe it. It's uh, like a video course for designers to build their business. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. It teaches the business of freelancing basically. Great. And now you've, you've written books in the past, you've got this new book and the podcast, of course, how do you make it all make sense? You know, like it seems like a lot of plates to have in the air. Um, how do you pick new projects? How do you decide what to keep? Do you kill old things? What, what do you, how do you think about all that? Yeah. So my business is just me and a team of freelancers that I kind of hire as needed. Um, so the way that it kind of works is I focus on one thing, get it done, move on to another one thing. So for example, when I was writing Company of One, it's the only thing I did for three months was just the book. When I was getting Fathom ready to release, all I did was work on Fathom. So for me, I like having a lot of different things because I get bored <laughs> really easily. So I like having like podcasts to record or videos to make or software to, to write and design um, or, or books to write. So I like having all of those things, but I also don't want to have a big company to do those things because I like actually doing the work. I wouldn't want to promote myself out of the job I like. So I just kind of single, like I single task each thing. So I'm always working on one thing with absolute laser focus. Then I do it, release it, move on to another thing. So for Fathom, there'll probably be about three, four weeks between feature releases because I don't want to focus on Fathom for those three or four weeks <laughs> other than doing the support. 
So that's kind of how that works as, as far as picking things, as, as you asked. Right now, running business is hard. <laughs> Making products are hard. So I try to find things where I can at least have a couple easy wins. So what I mean by that is I, I try to do things iteratively. And so I only want to release things that seem like they can gain traction quickly without putting a ton of work or doing like paid acquisition for them. So Fathom is a good example of that. I spent an hour in um, XD mocking up what I thought an analytics platform should look like. And I tweeted it. And I was like, okay, if this tweet, if this tweet does well, I'll think about building Fathom. If it doesn't do well, then whatever. I spent an hour making a pretty cool mock-up in XD and it'll it'll live and die there. And so I tweeted it out and it did ridiculously well. People shared it and liked it and retweeted it. And I was like, okay, seems like this could be an easy win as far as initial traction. So myself and uh, my partner in the project, Danny, we built a, basically a, a working alpha very quickly, threw it on GitHub, it did ridiculously well there. It was, I think, number two on Product Hunt. We didn't even add it to Product Hunt. We wish somebody hadn't added it to Product Hunt because we had no paid product at that point. So I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, this is great, but we can't actually make money off of it. And then it reached number two for a day on Hacker News. But that also showed us that, hey, this is something that people are interested in. This is something where we could spend our time focused on developing it and at least to some degree, not entirely, but it's going to build traction on its own. It's going to get promoted to the places we want it to without us having to spend all of our time promoting this thing. So that's kind of what I do now. Even with my writing, I try to write things that I know are going to do well. So I'll write a tweet on the topic. If that does well, I'll turn it into an article. I'll share the article with my mailing list. If my mailing list likes it, then I'll be like, okay, maybe this could be something bigger. Maybe this could be a book. And if it's going to be a book, I'm going to share probably half a dozen to a dozen articles on the topic, see how that fares, see my, the reaction from my audience. And then if it's good or favorable, like it was around Company of One, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll write a book on that. So I feel like it's iterative and also lazy because I don't want to do the work until I know the work is going to pay off a little bit. So yeah, I know there's a, a bunch of software developers in the audience that are hopefully nodding their heads like, oh, that's what I should have done <laughs> before I spent six weeks building a prototype that then I launched to crickets. I love that testing the market with minimum viable effort. You know, it's that's fantastic. Yeah, ditto on the training programs. It's just, it's like music to my ears when I hear your testing process. Yeah, I, I even courses, like I, I run them like software. So I work a ton on onboarding because I don't want to have to spend all of my time onboarding new students. So I try to answer all of the questions before they have that question in their head to ask me. If I got a, like half a dozen emails from every student, I'd have to try, I'd have to put a zero on my course prices. So I run, I run like a beta group through it. I run like a second beta group through it. I work on onboarding to have like welcome videos or different text in the emails. That's like, I, I know what questions you're going to ask and I'm going to answer them before you have to hit email, before you have to email me to ask them because I don't want to get inundated with um, emails because I don't want to 
have to just deal with that when a course is launching. I want to just answer like sales questions. And even that I want to try to answer everything I can on the website first, and then hopefully just get the questions that are out of left field. Like somebody, good example, the weirdest example of that was for creative class. It's a lot of it talks about um, like keeping clients and how it's less costly to retain clients than find new ones all the time. Retention is cheaper than acquisition. And this woman emailed me and she was like, Paul, I don't know if creative class is right for you. I'm a death doula. Didn't even know that this existed as a job. (laughs) And so she's like, if I do my job well, my client can't be a source of referrals because they're (laughs) dead. Is the course right for me? There's no way I could have thought of an FAQ to put that on the website sales page. Right. So yeah, I just, uh, that was like, that was like the the coolest email, like pre-sales question ever that I got. (laughs) I had the exact same experience launching the pricing seminar. I spent a lot of time on the onboarding materials and it really paid off. Mm -hmm. It, It really helped. And running a beta group through it it sort of shakes out all of those, you know, it's not me making up frequently asked questions as people actually asking me questions that frequently, and then you can answer them. And I I just love this sort of starting in the center and kind of moving outward and concentric circles are like a slow spiral. So it gets bigger and more solid and more useful, more valuable. And at the same time, it stays pretty, like the work doesn't scale up at the same time. Yeah, like I always look for ways that I can do things at scale that take the same amount of time as one-on-one. So a good example of that is like we like we're talking about like figuring out onboarding. So if I sell 100 seats in my course or 1000 seats in my course, it takes the same amount of my time to manage those sales. Same with same with my newsletter. That's why I spend so much time on my newsletter. It takes the same amount of time for me to write an email to one person as it does for me to write an email to 30,000 people. So why wouldn't <laughs> why wouldn't I focus on that because then I don't need to like hire a bunch of people. I don't need to increase my costs on the back end to see the the benefits uh, in in terms of profit or time spent on the front end. So do you find that you wind up closing down any of your old projects? Like, is there a course, even if it performed well, where you'd say, "Mm, I'm not sure if I have the time to spend on this right now. Do you do mothball things? Do you? Oh yeah. I have a great, I have a great, like I have a graveyard of products basically. (laughs) But even sometimes it's even like I killed off, I had a product that was selling WordPress themes and that was great and that was actually pretty profitable, but it required so much support that it was like the maintenance costs of it didn't make sense for me because I was spending all of my time doing support and then I wouldn't be able to do things like, oh, I'm just going to take three months off to write a book. I Every day I would have to wake up and see hours of support emails for that. And that, that wasn't worth it to me. And I think a lot of times we fail to recognize that uh, the associated maintenance costs of opportunities that we have. So even if something could potentially be profitable or is actually literally profitable, if it costs too much to maintain or if it isn't worth it to maintain, maybe it's not worth it. I've killed off software products, uh, courses, podcasts, (laughs) so many things. What's the thread? I mean, you referred to your audience and you make things for the audience. Are you able to sort of make it make sense and have a, this kind of ready test bed of willing feedback givers, I guess? 
is it because that you've created an audience that's super cohesive? And is it that the audience is cohesive or is it just that your personal brand is so strong that you're going to attract the kind of people who are going to like the kind of things you're going to do? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think a lot of times, especially if we get into thinking about like marketing or developing personas, I think that the caveat there is that we end up building these one-dimensional visions of the human beings that we want to reach. And a, a lot of humans are messy and interested in so many different things. And I think it's hard to just be like, okay, my audience is people who like this or who do this. When in reality, they may share that in common, but they may be more different than they are alike, in which case that persona will kind of fall flat, or they could be more interested in something else. So I think one is the cadence at which I communicate with my audience. So I've had a weekly newsletter for six years, never missed a, it's called the Sunday Dispatches. So obviously it sends out on Sunday, (laughs) never missed a Sunday, except when I'm on a scheduled break. So I talk to my audience every single week. The email doesn't go to no reply at my URL. It goes to me. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter um, if I get 100 replies. If they have questions, I'll answer them. If they write 10 pages, I'm not going to answer those emails because I'm not going to reward that. (laughs) But I think that having that is, is really important. And I think that I do this kind of consciously now, but I didn't in the beginning is I don't have, like, what I write about and what I talk about and what I build isn't just one specific thing. So I think that's good because, one, I would get bored and probably have stopped doing it years ago. But two, my audience. If I was just writing about the business of freelancing for six years, I don't know what I would even be saying at this point. But I also (laughs) feel like my audience would be so bored of that. Whereas now, like, I know kind of the type of people that my audience are. And they're not just like freelancers who make six figures or developers or writers. Like they're just, they're people who are kind of curious about the world and challenging the status quo and whatever they kind of do. So I feel like one week I could write an article that kind of relates to like my pet rats and art. Another week I could write about marketing. Another week I could write about being a known person on the internet. And it's going to flow because it's just, it's things that people might be thinking about or things they could have thought about. Or sometimes it's even, this email doesn't interest me, but I know the next one will. So I'll just delete this and read the next one. So I feel like having a a much wider scope of, of who my audience is and what I want to share has been really helpful because I can do things like release a privacy-focused analytics platform one month and then have a course for freelancing or for MailChimp the next month. And it all kind of ties together because I don't just talk about one thing. I kind of talk about all of the things. Well, I have to say, one of the things I love about your your Sunday dispatches is exactly that, is, is the difference. And you know, recently you wrote about the Americans, the show, the TV <laughs> show, which I love, and, and a scene from that, and, and your rats. You know, it makes you human and interesting and sometimes quirky. And, you know, personally, I love that. That that reels me in. Yeah, thank you. I think that it's really just like I'm obviously interested in lots of different things. And I think I'd be doing my audience a disservice if I thought that they were only interested in one thing as well, because like I know they're not. So I try to hit on uh, as much as possible. I just think it keeps it interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, yours is interesting. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm always. on the list. I've been on the list for a long time too, and it's and I always know 
that I'm going to, it's going to be worth reading. You know, I, I always know that even if it isn't, you know, something tactical that I can apply right now, you know, it doesn't, I almost just said, I'm not really in your audience, but I actually am <laughs> by the definition that you just gave. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of a paradox here that I'd like to drill into a tiny bit. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole too much, but what you're describing also, I've seen other people do like a bunch of different categories of things and it just comes out scattered. It doesn't feel scattered when it comes from you somehow. I've seen it plenty of other times. It's like you just see this person thrashing like, like, oh, and, and now I'm going to do this. And then they kill it and they do something completely different and then they kill it. Like get everybody excited, see if it's going to fly. And then they just like abandon the customer, you know, the small number of customers because they're like, oh, that wasn't enough people. And then they try something completely different. So I, I guess what I'm saying is there's sort of two ways to do this. And maybe it's a spectrum, not just two ways, but... I'm completely fascinated by the fact that you can pull it off because it's really attractive to me for the same reason. It's like, I don't want to be just talking about the same exact thing for the next 10 years. Yeah. So. I think a lot of it also comes down to positioning. Like the way that I position all of my products is the same. Like it's the same kind of voice and style and speaking to the same audience. So you're actually a, a good example of that where you're, you're not going to buy a course on the business of freelancing. But the way that I kind of make my points is engaging or interesting enough to you to stay on my list. And then when I have a product like Fathom where you're like, oh, I could actually use this. Like I known Paul for a while through his writing and through other things. Um, I'm going to trust that this, this is going to be a, a decent product for me to try out. And so like I see in my audience that people buy all sorts of different things. I mean, more than half of the people who buy one thing from me buy more than one thing from me. But it's not always like everybody who buys this buys this. It's kind of like, I think I, I hit the same kind of people at different areas in their journey. So where a freelancing course may not make sense, maybe the email marketing course does, maybe the analytics platform does, maybe the podcast on questioning growth does. So I, I feel like I hit the same type of people generally, but just at different phases in their journey. And I think that's what kind of makes it, at least that's what I think kind of makes it cohesive and less of like a scattershot or random I have to ask a very tactical question because I'm just curious. What made you decide to choose Sunday for your release? It's it's an, an unusual day of the week for a, a business newsletter. What what made you decide? And and you know you've stuck with it, so it's obviously working. Yeah, I just straight up copied Chris Brogan. His emails always <laughs> went out or still do go out on Sunday, and I was like, I kind of like waking up on Sunday. I have no other mailing list emails on Sunday. I like getting his. His feel really conversational. He always asks me what I'm drinking. And so I'm like, well, I'll just copy, I'll just copy Brogan for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I've told him that as well. It's like I talked to Chris now. I was like, I totally copied you. He's like, I don't care. <laughs> so Yep. I get uh, a Saturday morning email from uh, John Dick at Civic Science. I just it's like my morning coffee read and yours is the Sunday one. Yeah. And that's what people that people tell me that all the time. They're like, oh, I like getting this on Sunday, or the the Aussies get it on Monday. But like people, yeah, it just, it seems to fit. Plus it's called the Sunday Dispatches now and has been for so many years. So it would just be weird if it was like a Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd pull it off somehow. So let's pivot a little bit. It's, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times about Company of One and staying small. Let's talk about that because there's a bunch of, bunch of things to tease apart there. I'd love to start with the word grow. 
you say a lot on, on the uh, podcast for the book and in the book, it kind of bugs me that the word grow is used by people to mean add employees. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like you could also grow your revenue or your profits or the value of your business. And that's still growth. But I, I recognize that most people, when they say, oh, I'm going to grow the company, they mean hiring a bunch of people. Yeah. And I mean, I'm pretty much on the same page with you. Like, I always like to find ways that I can grow my revenue without growing my employees or grow my net without growing um, my expenses kind of thing. So I think that, I mean, a lot of the book is just picking at um, the, the whole growth hacker mentality, which is about growing everything in all directions at all times, which I mean, in nature, that's kind of what cancer is. It's not necessarily a good <laughs> thing. So I think that the, the, the way that I wanted to kind of tease apart the, the mindset or the ethos of the book was to kind of say, like, growth for the, the purpose of this discussion is making the business bigger, making the, um, the bottom number bigger, like growing expenses, revenue, infrastructure, that sort of thing. And I think when we just look at that, there's a lot of, there's a lot of downside with not a whole lot of upside for that, whereas like growing, like you were saying, like growing um, profit, uh, there's almost no downside to growing profit. <laughs> yeah. like, so I think that when we're talking about growth or in, just in the context of the book, it's like the, the facts and the studies and the numbers don't line up with um, like the, the trite business advice on the internet currently where it's like growth is always good or like 10x this or 10x shut up (laughs) because like looking at all this study like just looking at a couple studies so startup genome project found that something like 74 percent of businesses fail because of scaling up too quickly um the kaufman foundation did a study on the inc 5000 list and the inc 5000 list basically applauds companies that are growing quickly but then kaufman foundation did a study 5 to 8 years after of that same 5000 list year over year and they found that 5 out of 8 companies were had gone under not because of competition or anything other than the fact that they just scaled too quickly and lost sight of things and scaled based on projected revenue instead of actual profits and just like just like study after study showing that growth is typically bad even the the standard amount of time that a business exists that's on the S&P index is 15 years before they go bust. And I think about that and I'm like, my business has existed for 20 years. That's five more than, uh, than the businesses on that list. And sure, they probably, they easily made a gazillion times more in revenue, but like I've kept my business small. It's really easy to maintain a small business with very little, um, in terms of expenses and I have a pretty good life. Like I have everything that I basically want without having to manage thousands of employees, without having to even promote myself out of the job I like. I really like making things on the internet if you haven't already guessed, right? And if I had a big company, I'd be managing people making things on the internet. And I don't want to do that. I don't like managing people. Others are really good at managing. I'm really good at making stuff. So I don't want to promote myself out of the job of that. There's a related topic that I just want to like quickly touch on because I've talked about it plenty before, but folks who are solo operator who bill by the hour 
a lot of times they feel like the only way that they can improve their situation, let's say it's lifestyle or let's say it's income or whatever, is to hire more people because they need more hands to bill out and they're working like crazy hours already and not making enough money to support the lifestyle that they want. So they think like, oh, the only thing I can, I can't, I can't significantly increase my hourly rate or I'm going to lose all my clients. I can't work more. I'm already working too much. So they feel like the the only option is to hire a bunch of junior employees and mark up their time and build them out that way. It's sort of a seductive path for people who have that kind of a uh, pricing structure. My solution though is like, well, stop billing by the hour. <laughs> Yeah, I think we pretty much agree on that. It's also really hard to compete at the bottom of the market when you're just competing on cost per hour. Like, it's really hard to, com- I don't even know how to compete at that because somebody's charging $18, well, I have to charge $17. It's just like, it's the, it's way more packed and competitive at the bottom of the market than it is at the top of the market. <laughs> like, when you're pricing by value or deliverable or pricing really by expertise instead of positioning yourself as a technician of being able to do this work when you when you start to think of yourself more as a pro or an expert and you're billing more for the the quality of the knowledge and the quality of the of how you can problem solve it's easier because then you're not competing with a market that's charging maybe a dollar more or a dollar less. Like you're really just competing with yourself because people in that situation are going to be coming to you for you specifically. They're not going on Google and like Googling web designer (laughs) or developer. And I mean, like even like I started out charging something like $30 an hour when I started as a web designer and I didn't want to hire more people. So I just kept increasing my rates and increasing the way that I positioned myself where the web design was an outcome of solving a business problem correctly. And when I started to do that, I could basically charge whatever I wanted per project because there was value there in a return on investment instead of just, I need to hire somebody who's going to cost me this much. This is an expense that I have. When I positioned it more as, I'm going to help you solve a business problem through design. And this is an investment because you're going to see a return on on what you spend, then that's like, I could charge, I could pretty much charge whatever I want. I kept, when I stopped doing client work, I just kept increasing my rates and I never saw a drop off in clients. And I just pivoted into products because I felt like doing that. But I could have still been increasing my rates and and going from there because I was competing only with myself at the top of the market, being the person who did that type of work in that niche where like people weren't Googling me and finding me. People were hearing about me through other work that I was doing. And with that, that's basically trust by proxy. Word of mouth is trust by proxy, right? So it's just me competing with myself and seeing like, maybe this is a good fit or maybe this isn't a good fit. And it's just me against myself as opposed to me against like 500,000 people on Upwork or something like that. Yep, absolutely. I feel like framing that and somehow putting that on our podcast wall. <laughs> it's it's perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And it takes time to do it. I mean, yes. people, cause people yeah. will say, Oh, I could never do that. Like there's nothing different about me or the things that are different about me are not obvious to clients. So I need to educate the clients about my craft so they can recognize the difference between me and someone who's $5 an hour. And it's like, it's like, uh, it's so frustrating. It's like, no, you need to Climb out of the crab bucket, as Philip Morgan says. Cool. Okay, so let's talk about the title for a second. So Company of One. I know from talking to you and listening to you that you don't literally necessarily mean 
that you have to always work by yourself. And you talk about the word solopreneur. Can you kind of riff on that a little bit? Yeah. So I think just because you work for yourself doesn't mean you have to work by yourself. And the title of the book, Company of One, super catchy. My agent and my publisher really liked it, but it is a bit of a misnomer because like, even for my company, I have a team of people that one, make me look good and two, keep my business running. And I think, and even in the book, like I, I, there's a lot of great examples of like Buffer and Basecamp um, who are running businesses. And I think Company of One is more of a mindset. And the, the mindset and the thesis really is um, the byproduct of success isn't always growth. It's the freedom of choice. So if you're successful as a business, it doesn't mean you have to grow. Maybe growth might make sense. Maybe it doesn't. But it's the ability to question what growth makes sense, when it makes sense, and why it makes sense. So, I mean, you could be a business of 500 people and still have the, the company of one mindset. You could be a business of just one person and have that mindset. I think it's hard to run a one-person business, to be honest. Like, it's hard to have all of the skills required to do the thing that you're charging money for and do all the admin work required. Like I know how to make money really well, but I don't know how to do like file with the government. So I have to pay them the least amount of money. When I started a business, I thought, oh, well, you pay the government your taxes. And it's like almost a static number based on how much you make. And then when I started working with accountants, it was like, no, <laughs> there are so many ways that you can save or pay the government a lot less. And I mean, like, I don't want to part with, I'm cheap. I don't want to part with my hard earned money. So I want the best accountant that's going to save me the most amount of money when I have to give my government some of it. And his fee is, is worth it. And he ends up saving me more than he costs anyways. So I have a lawyer, I have a copy editor, an editor, a podcast editor, an executive assistant, um, and then partners for a few of my products. Right. So like I have a team of people, but they're all either 50-50 partners or freelancers that I don't have to worry about like HR stuff. So, and I don't have to be responsible solely for those people. I would rather hire the top, just like I wanted to be top of market. I'd rather hire the top of market people to do what I need done. And I'd rather pay the premium of the top of market A-list players because I don't need to manage those people. I hate managing people. I'm really good at doing things. I'm not good at managing other people doing things. So I would rather hire people and pay them more where I don't have to, like, I know they're going to do the work. I don't need to micromanage. I don't even need to check in. They're either doing the work or if they have a problem, we're talking about what the problem is. But otherwise, I just leave them be. And to me, that's like, that's a perfect scenario for my business specifically, is I can have a small team of people working as freelancers who I pay a lot, who do a good job that I don't have to manage and that don't require anything other than here's the like here's the finished product paul and i'm like like i communicate with my copy editor in emojis and like that's how like yeah. that's like single emojis to each other and we have like a shorthand that takes me zero time and he just does the work he knows exactly what needs to be done and does it i don't have to manage somebody like if i hire somebody off of fiverr i could probably pay them a lot like 90 percent less but I would probably be checking in on them. Their work product may not be good. It may take more rounds of revisions. I'm like, I just, I don't want to do that. Yeah, it ends up being less expensive to go with someone who's actually good. It's also hard to position ourselves at the top of the market and then say, oh, well, let's buy at the bottom of the market <laughs> to do our services. I mean, it just feels, you know, inconsistent at best. 
Yeah, I feel like because I've been on the other end of the client service relationship, I feel like I always want to be the best client ever. Like whenever uh, somebody on my team sends me an invoice, I try to pay them within minutes. Like mm-hmm. I'm always like, oh, I want to be the best client. Like I want to be the, because I've had such, I've had crappy clients. Everybody's had crappy clients. And I want to be the good client. I'm always checking in to see like, how's this going? What do you, like, what can I do to make your job easier? Which makes my job easier. So yeah, I like to hire people at the top of their game because I, I competed at that level and I know the benefits of that. So I glad, yeah, I gladly do that as well when I hire people. <laughs> It'd be funny if I didn't. You're right. Yeah. So what's the long game for Paul Jarvis, Inc.? A lot of people I hear sort of use the the word lifestyle business as a kind of uh, a dig, you know, like, oh, well, that's just a lifestyle business. And it's like, oh, yeah, your startup's not a lifestyle business. Like, you don't yeah. care about the lifestyle that you think you're going to get out of that. But to stay small in the sort of parameters that you're describing here, it's sort of maximize personal freedom and autonomy, create a day-to-day that you thoroughly enjoy. Are you the type of person who thinks at some, I don't know how old you are, but at some point you'll be like, oh, I'm going to retire. Yeah. I mean, in theory, like I definitely, my savings account is, is building to, well, my, my investments are building towards not having to work, but like, honestly, I don't know what that looks like. Like I'm in my forties. I could potentially stop working soon. I don't know if I will. I think it may change slightly where I'm working a bit less, but even, I don't know, man, like I, I like work. <laughs> like, I, I really liked it. I really like the work that I do. So even in my early twenties, the only smart thing I did in my twenties, cause I did so much stupid stuff in my twenties was start saving and putting money into like, um, index funds basically, because I wanted to make sure that because working for yourself, it can be risky. It doesn't have to be risky. I don't think entrepreneurialism is inherently risky. I think there's ways, just like we were talking about in the beginning, where I take slow iterative steps. I think there's ways to diminish risk when you're working for yourself. I've worked for myself for 20 years. I don't know anybody that works at a company that's worked at that company for 20 years. Like I have friends that have worked for all the big startups and they move like every six to eight months. They're at a different company because they either got downsized or the business changed or they got a different manager who now isn't great to work with. And it's like, I feel like I've built a business that is like more stable than most corporate jobs at this point. As long as I'm continuing to save, as long as I have a bit of a liquid buffer um, that makes me feel comfortable. As long as I do things that alleviate the stress of money, I'm happy. As far as goals go, I have zero. Like I don't have any long-term planning. I think setting artificial targets for the sake of setting targets just seems kind of silly to me, at least. I mean, I don't, I'm not motivated by having goals, so I don't care. Like even thinking about it, like 10 years ago, I didn't think that I would have a product business or that I would be um, an author. Like five years ago, I didn't think I'd be doing like podcasts and that. So like, I I always just like to leave myself open. Like as long as I'm happy and profitable in the present, then I'm just kind of open to what comes up. And I mean, I think that rubs some people the wrong way because it makes me sound like a, like a hippie, but I'm also very driven. So in the moment, I'm working very hard to accomplish the things in front of me. But as far as planning goes, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> like, I just don't care about setting long-term goals because I like to stay open to to, to what could come up in the future because I don't know what's going to... And it would just be a guess. Like, honestly... 
like five year plans or 10 year plans. They're guesses. They may be good guesses. They may be crappy guesses. But like I can put a quarter in a Zoltar machine and get kind of the same result <laughs> as me making a long term business plan. So poor Zoltar. I don't even think Zoltar exists anymore anywhere. <laughs> Actually, I did just see a Zoltar at a Dave and Buster's. He's Zoltar lives. So you can rest yes. assured. Pretty sure the last time I saw him was at some like truck stop in middle America that was advertised for, oh, I can't remember where it was. It's like, five, it's advertised for like four states in, in every direction that there's five cent coffee or 10 cent coffee. Wow. Might be in South Dakota. I can't remember. Oh, but it's, yeah, that, it's, it's Iowa, Kansas, and someplace like that where the four states come together. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's yeah. the four corners. Yeah, it's in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we've covered Zoltar, uh, five cent coffee. (laughs) What else can you tell us about the book? Is there another big theme in the book that we haven't touched on? I'm sure there must be. If we posit the idea that growth doesn't always make sense, the next step from that is, well, when does it, when does it make sense and when does it not make sense? And I think that there's some, the book is kind of less of a blueprint and more of a prompt for introspection really doesn't sell it. So I should probably come up with a better way to position that. (laughs) But I think that there are some, some specific prompts that we can start to think about to better question um, what makes sense in terms of scale. Because I think when we start our business, we're all kind of in the same place. We need more to, to survive. Like we don't start a business and have enough um, profit to sustain like our income. Typically, sometimes we can, and then that that's great. But most companies start at zero and need to grow to survive. And I think what, what the, where the problem lies is that we develop this mentality early and this mentality rewards us because as we get more, it's better. But then we reach a point sometimes, if, if things are going well, we reach a point where we have enough. And when we reach enough, a lot of times we don't think about that. We just continue in this growth mindset of, well, I need more to survive. And sometimes you already have enough. <laughs> you, you've already got what you need to survive. So growth doesn't make sense. So I think we need to start to think about things like, um, why do we want more? How much is enough? How will we know when we've reached enough? And what will change in our business when we do reach enough? Because sometimes having more doesn't serve our happiness or our lifestyle. And Jonathan, you mentioned that too. I think people in the startup world or the VC world have much more of a lifestyle business than like consultants or people that work for themselves. So I think we need to think about like, does does scale help or serve our existing customers? What are the maintenance costs of scale or saying yes to things? How does this affect our profits, our, our net, not just gross? Because sometimes it costs a lot more to make just a little bit more. Um, and then what are the responsibilities? And I think it always, at least for me, it always comes back to how I want to spend my day, right? And like I said, I didn't want, I don't really think about retiring because I like my work. If I said yes to some things like some scale or some growth, then I may be in a position where I don't like how I spend my day. If I had to manage others instead of like sitting in my home office by myself, writing and designing things, that might not be the best thing for me. It might be great for other people. It wouldn't be great for me. So I think those are kind of some of the specific prompts that I would use to kind of think like, is this, and a lot of times it's just ego. 
Like it sounds, we think it sounds better to say, I have a big business or I have a hundred employees versus I sit in my pajamas at home and work. Like if somebody was going to judge me for that one, that's silly because I probably make a lot more than people who have hundreds of employees and have to have all of these responsibilities in that. I could probably make more money not doing that and not having those expenses. But two, why do I give a shit what somebody that's judging me thinks, right? Like, why would I want to be, like, say, why would I want to be at a dinner party where, like, I'm judged by how how many employees I have? Like, why would I, I don't want to be at that dinner party. I want to be at a dinner party that's so fun that we don't even talk about work. Like, if I'm at a dinner party, I don't want to talk about work anyways. So I think a lot of times... Ego is good because ego is what helps us start our own thing because we think we can do something better. So we start our own business. That's a, that's a great and useful part of ego. Where ego doesn't serve us is when we start to think we want things that we don't actually want to like keep up with the Joneses or because we see this version of success on TV or in the news. And it's like, you know, many people have said like, oh, I want to have a business like Facebook years ago, not nowadays, but like oh, I want to have like a business as big as Facebook. And then like watching Zuck in front of Congress being <laughs> asked like awkward questions from old white guys who don't get it. It's like, I don't want that business. Like, I don't want, I don't want to be known by Congress. Like, I don't want to be on TV. Like, I don't, that version of success isn't my version of success. And I think if we take a step back and think about like, what is success to me? It could be something different. Like it could be, there's so many stories in the book that talk about people who have found their version of success. And it could be like um, a guy named Tom Fishburne who uh, runs Marketune. His version, he quit a job as a C-level corporate guy in a large food company. He was making a lot of money. And he now draws um, in his backyard um, with his dot. So he draw. they have like a little studio in their backyard. They live in Northern California. So it's always gorgeous weather or something. I live in the Pacific Northwest where it's never gorgeous weather. Um, so he gets to sit in his backyard and draw and his, his two daughters get to sit there and draw with their dad every afternoon. And one, he makes more money than he did when he worked for a big company. But two, like he gets to define what his version of success is. And that means spending his afternoons with his daughters and like being part of their childhood. And it's like, if you were growing a massive company or required to work 20 hours a day, you wouldn't have that. Like, I don't think Elon Musk has like a gazillion kids. I don't think he has time to spend with them for hours every single day. So like his version of success obviously prioritizes things different, which works for him, probably. I don't know. (laughs) But like, I think it depends on the person. And it's so intensely personal that if we go after somebody else's version of success, if we win at that, we end up with their version of success. If we lose at that, we've chased something that we might not even want in the first place. So it seems like it's a, either way, it seems like it's a lose-lose to me. And that's the cool thing about the subject, I think, in the, in the book, is that it calls that to the fore. Like you said, it's a prompt to think about this. Mm-hmm. And it gives you permission to just sort of be like the cover of the business magazines. Look at the cover of business magazines. You're just like, whatever, that's cool for you. Yeah. And it's not automatically the thing that you aspire to. Totally. Well, it's about values. And I mean, to me, that's the beauty of having your own business is you define the values that you want for your life and for your work and you build your business around those. Yeah. hundred hundred percent agree. Yeah. You're the poster child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Great. So that might, that might be a good place to leave it. Cool. So Paul, yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Uh, where should people go to find out more about you online? Yeah, so if you Google Paul Jarvis, um, the first page or two of um, the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so my newsletter, the Sunday Dispatch, is pjrvs.com. Uh, the book is Company of One is available um, for pre-order or order, depending on when you listen to this, pretty much everywhere. Um, it's traditionally published, so it's in bookstores and online. Uh, and the website for the book is ofone.co. All right, great, folks. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Michelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.